Strange Stories UK here again. This is Season 2, Episode 27. And I'm calling this one Ronnie Knight, The Murder of Alfredo Zamparelli and the Consequences. Ronnie Knight could be the template for the original diamond dodgy geezer. He was born in the East End of London in 1934 and came from a family that had criminal contacts and were involved in various criminal enterprises. His two brothers, James and Johnny, were well known in the London underworld, both of them Freemasons. The brothers had a long criminal history and criminal records dabbling in different types of scams, fencing, money lending, protection, as well as robbery. Jimmy, the eldest brother, made a fortune from scrap metal. Scrap metal, the classic front for criminal gangs and had a number of criminal enterprises that Jimmy was involved in. Ronnie Knight says that although his parents were honest, the way they brought up their children encouraged them to become criminals. The only way that you could look after yourself was to learn to fight. And then you had to start earning money any way you could. Knight did start out in legitimate jobs, such as uh, being a rag and bone man and in scaffolding. But there was dodges here as well. He learnt to take the scaffolding down at night to make more money. Then Ronnie Knight went on to deal in stolen goods, for which he had his first prison sentence of 15 months in 1961. Ronnie said that all of his mates were in a dodgy business, and so he followed. It's just the way it was in the East End at that time. The Knights were well known in the East End of London. They were contemporaries of the Cray family. Ronnie Knight got to know the Crays at a boxing club. John and Ronnie got on very well with Reg and Ronnie. There was a strong friendship between the Knights and the Crays. Ronnie did various jobs for the Cray gang. The Cray twins were put up by the Knight family when they were on the run from the army after deserting. The Knight family members had connections with various London gangs. Ronnie and Johnny Knight both worked for the Crays and others associated with the Cray gang, such as Freddie Foreman. So the Knight family were an East End criminal family. Ronnie Knight was the best known of the three brothers. He was the husband of actress Barbara Windsor, marrying her in 1964. And as a result of her contacts, Ronnie got to run the Artiste and Repertoire Club, becoming part owner with another dodgy character called Mick Reagan, who was a well-known character in London criminal circles and who specialised in the club scene. He was brother-in-law to Freddie Foreman. So Ronnie Knight became known as a celebrity gangster. The name of the club was changed to the A&R Club, which became very popular, attracting a mixed crowd. The club was at 142 Charing Cross Road, and the walls were covered in signed photographs of famous musicians. A number of famous musicians, such as the Rolling Stones, were said to be regulars. The club did have a seedy reputation as a meeting place for London's criminals, and it was a well-known place to buy stolen goods. Also, well-known artists would give impromptu performances at the club, and it's fondly remembered by those that used it. The other club that uh, Ronnie Knight ran was called the Tim Pan Annie Club, just around the corner. Ronnie Knight, despite his showbiz connections, had no reservation in how he made his living. Making money was the priority. He was involved in pornography, 
the pornography business in central London. As Ronnie Knight admits, business is business. He invested in clip joints and clubs including the slot business, which is where a club, uh, a club where naked women strut around on stage while little individual cubicles have a peephole onto the stage that remain open if coins are fed into a slot. And for a price, the customer can purchase a naked photograph of the women that he'd been uh, watching. Knight claimed that he was providing a service. The customer remained anonymous and the women remained safe. Knight also invested in providing escorts, attractive women that could be hired for the night by lonely men to escort them to night spots. Knight said there was never any promise of hanky-panky, as he put it, but as both were responsible adults, what they got up to was their own affair. But in reality, it was prostitution. Ronnie Knight was thus a pimp. All three Knight brothers had a, a long-time friend and associate, Billy Hickson, and all of them were to receive a lengthy jail sentence for the 1983 Shoreditch Security Express heist. The Security Express headquarters in Curtin Road, Shoreditch, was known as Fort Knox. But the theft of £6 million of untraceable banknotes weighing at five tonnes, the largest cash robbery in British history, was undertaken by, well, Johnny Knight. Employees of the Security Express were threatened. One employee was soaked in petrol and threatened with matches until he cooperated. There was shotguns used, but apparently they were unloaded. Johnny Knight carefully planned the raid over a long time, often using the Fox Pub in Hackney, half owned by Johnny Knight, as a meeting place for those involved and as a place to hide incriminated evidence. John Knight said that his elder brother wasn't involved. Ronnie Knight wasn't built for armed robbery, he's a club person. But Ronnie Knight, the celebrity gangster, was involved. This security heist job pulled in quite a few well-known London criminals, including Freddie Foreman. For a while, Ronnie was able to make use of the fact that Britain and Spain had fallen out over the ownership of Gibraltar, and there was no extradition between the two countries, a situation that was exploited by a number of British criminals during 1978 to 1985, making the Costa de Sol known as the Costa del Crime. Ronnie Knight, who owned a villa in the region since around 1975, popularised the Costa del Crime, encouraging a number of criminals to move to Spain and escape the police. Cliff Sachs, the landlord of the pub Fox Public House, also moved there after the Security Express robbery. Clearly he was involved. But this podcast story starts in May 1970, when Ronnie... His youngest brother David, David Knight, aged 22, who was married and a father, went for a drink at a club at the Angel Islington, North London, with a couple of friends. The following account comes from Ronnie Knight. While in the bar, a character called Johnny Isaac starts to harass David Knight about his brother Johnny Knight, saying, Your brother took a right liberty with me last week. David Knight replied, Sorry about that, but whatever Johnny gets up to has nothing to do with me. Will you effing tell him I ain't going to forget? I don't tell my brother anything. If you've got a grievance, you go and have a word with him. Leave me out of it. The situation was escalating, and then a friend of uh, David Knight called Billy Hickson punched Isaacs in the face. Billy Hickson was known as Mad Dog Hickson. He was a career criminal, 
later spending years in prison for armed robbery and other crimes. As his name suggests, he was quick to anger. Hickson's criminal record spans decades, and he was thought to be involved in the Brinks Mat and Hatton Garden heists, as well as the Security Express heist. He had a long connection with the Knight family, being part of the Knight Gang, if there ever was one. Anyhow, a fight broke out, and four men came to back up Isaacs in the fight. It seems to have been a setup to beat up David Knight. It was a nasty fight, ashtrays, bottles, beer mugs were all used, and David Knight was badly injured and taken away in an ambulance. It was never established why the fight started. Johnny Isaacs was an associate of well-known London gangster, Albert Dimes, who was involved in clubs in the West End. It was thought that the Knight brothers and others were trying to muscle in on various businesses, including the West End club scene. Albert Dimes was a heavyweight underworld figure, and for the most part successfully kept out of any publicity, but he was associated with gangs south of the Thames. The Knight brothers were associated with gangs in the East End, north of the Thames. It was thought that the presence of Dimes, who had contacts with the American Mafia, had kept the East London gangs, such as the Craze, out of the West End. Although the East End gangs would have been anxious to get in on the action, as in the, as in the West End there was lots of money to be made. Ronnie Knight, having a club in Charing Cross in the West End, and an interest in some other debatable businesses, was aware of the money to be made. And by the 1970s, he was trying to force his way into businesses in the area, the, uh, the West End area, which was jealously guarded by the established criminal gangs in the area, such as that organised by Albert Dimes. He had conducted business in the area for decades. The beating of David Knight seemed to be a message to the Knights and their associates, stay out of Soho. It was decided that there was going to be a meeting between the Knight family and Isaacs to sort out the problems that they had with each other. The Knight brothers, that's Ronnie Knight, Johnny Knight and David Knight, and Mad Billy Hickson, went to the Latin Quarter nightclub in Water Street near Leicester Square on Thursday the 7th of May 1970. They were expecting to meet with Johnny Isaacs and representatives of the Dimes organisation. There's some dispute how a fight started, but a brawl ensued. Billy Staten was running the Latin Quarter Club and others connected to the South London gangs, which included the Richardson gang, were fighting the Knight brothers who had links with the East End gang, such as the Cray gang. Alfred, Alfredo Zomparelli was an Italian boar. He was hired muscle, he was a doorman, he was a criminal who worked with Isaacs and was employed by Albert Dimes. Zomparelli was of average height but was very stocky. Anyway, he got hold of a carving knife during the fight and he fatally stabbed David Knight, who despite being rushed to Charing Cross Hospital, he died of his injuries. Zomparelli decided to get away and boarded the night ferry to Dover and returned to his native Italy. But there was a lot of publicity over the murder, and so after giving himself time to get a story together, he returned to the UK, and he gave a different interpretation of the night, saying that the night contingent started the fight. When the violence started, he was attacked, but he managed to get a knife from the kitchen in order to defend himself. No one who uh, wasn't there would ever know the truth, but in the Ronnie Knight version of events, even he admits that Billy Hickson kicked off first, and this seems to have caused the trouble. The police that investigated the crime had argued that the Knight gang had been the aggressors, and David Knight had been trying to muscle in on some business.
In November 1970, Zomparelli was convicted of manslaughter and was sentenced to four years. At the time, Ronnie Knight, who had sworn revenge for his brother's death, said he was glad that Zomparelli received a light sentence because he had some sentencing of his own to do. The Knight gang were charged with a fray. Hickson got a 12-month suspended sentence and Johnny and Ronnie Knight were acquitted as there were no witnesses prepared to testify what actually happened. Zomparelli served just two and a half years and on his release he seemed to set himself up as a travel agent in Frith Street, Soho. It's not known if this was a front as Zomparelli was supposed to have been involved in the amusement arcade rackets and he offered a protection to the Italian restaurants in central London area as well as being involved in other illegal activities in the Soho area. Around the corner from Frith Street was Old Crompton Street, Old Compton Street, where the Golden Goose Amusement Arcade was located. Zomparelli was a regular and a well-known figure at the Golden Goose, an arcade for the over-18s. Old Compton Street being much different than, uh, uh, than it is today. In 1974, it wasn't a tourist area. It was quite seedy with illegal drinking clubs, bookmaking clubs, many buildings advertising models for hire. Zomparelli seemed oblivious to the fact that just because he served a short sentence for killing a member of a London gang, that that wasn't going to be the end of the matter, and he would still be in danger. After his release, Zomparelli ignored friendly warnings that he shouldn't be in London. People were surprised when he returned to the area. Ronnie Knight claimed that Zomparelli was rubbing his nose in the fact that he'd got away with the murder of his brother, David Knight. On the 4th of September 1974, while playing pinball, Zomparelli was shot four times by a .38 revolver, one bullet in the head and three in the back. The .38 revolver is a light sidearm and often needs several shots or several bullets to kill. Witnesses said they saw two heavily disguised men shoot him in front of a large number of witnesses who panicked and ran. The media were happy to run the story on the front pages and speculate the gang warfare Chicago style had broken out on London streets. Ronnie Knight, who had said that he would kill Zomparelli, was questioned by the police, but they didn't have enough evidence to bring him to court. The police were convinced that Knight had something to do with the murder. Knight told the police that when he heard that Zomparelli was dead, he had opened a bottle of champagne, but unfortunately he had not been invited to the party. At Zomparelli's inquest in March 1975, the verdict was given that he had been killed unlawfully by person or persons unknown. Ronnie Knight later said in his autobiography that when Zomparelli was released, he was unhappy with the light sentence that he had received, and he decided that he was going to kill him. Because of his contacts, it was easy to get hold of a clean gun, and he knew that Zomparelli used the Golden Goose Arcade, and with the crowds that attended the arcade, it would be easy to shoot him and mingle with the escaping crowd to make good his escape. Ronnie Knight was then advised by one of his Cray Gang contacts, Alfie Gerard, Alfie Gerard had murdered in the past but never been charged, that it would be best if he got someone else that he could be trusted to do the killing, while Knight made sure he was a long way away with a good alibi. The following day, Knight was approached by Alfie's son, Nicky Gerard, who volunteered to do the job of murder. He was to be assisted by a person called Maxie Piggott, who was said to be a long-haired gangland hitman with a drooping moustache and beard. 
There was some story that Ronnie Knight was told of how Piggott was having an affair with Zomprelli's wife while he was in prison. Zomprelli's wife was called Rosanna and she was a former stripper and prostitute. The story was that Piggott was lovesick and wanted Rosanna who had returned to her husband back and without any complications so we needed Zomparelli out of the way for good. Another version of the story was that Nicky Gerard was in fact having an affair with Zomparelli's wife and he was worried about what the cacolded husband might do. Zomparelli was involved with other businesses that may have been the cause for his murder. He was involved in the theft and resale of high-end Italian cars and a connected insurance scam. He'd also been involved in the highly profitable amusement arcade business. He'd been a drug courier and also he had the business that he had to do uh, for, the, for the Dimes gang. Knight claimed that he agreed to let Gerard and Piggott go for the hit on Zomparelli and he said that he was going to give them a thousand pounds for their trouble. Although Knight said that he really wanted to do it himself, but it was best for him and his family to stay out of it. The thousand pound was so they could buy themselves a drink or two. In Knight's own words, next thing I know they come up, or one of them comes up and says he's done it. I say good luck, so I'll give him a thousand pounds. So go and have a drink on me. It wasn't pre-arranged, it wasn't nothing. It's just cause I thought I had a grand on me. I said, here's the thousand pound, go and have a drink on me. We'll give it to him, whatever. And the next thing you know, everyone's talking about that I paid them to do it. My satisfaction was to do it myself. I was looking for him everywhere. I wanted him, but someone beat me to it. So it was all very convenient that a jealous lover was on hand to kill Zomparelli just as Knight was about to commit murder. Unless of course it was a total lie to put Knight in a better light in his autobiography. Nicky Gerrard and Maxie Piggott had met up in a Clark, uh, flat in Clerkenwell on the day of the murder, from which they went to a theatre shop in Soho, where they bought dark glasses and false moustaches in an attempt to disguise themselves. From there they went on to the Golden Goose in Old Compton Street, and in the confusion of 40 or 50 people trying to flee the shooting, they made their good their escape. When news came through tonight that Zomparelli was dead, Nicky Gerrard had phoned him and told him the job was done. Knight told him he had plenty of witnesses, as he had been in his club during the shooting. A couple of days later, Nicky Gerrard called into the A&R club and was given a nice thick envelope by Knight, who shook his hand and thanked him. Knight thought that was to be the end of the business. It was five years later, on the 16th of January 1980. Armed police arrested Knight in the early hours of the morning at his home. He was arrested on the suspicion of murdering Alfredo Zomparelli. He was interviewed at West End Central where he learnt that Maxie Piggott was also known as George Bradshaw. Bradshaw had recently been arrested for a number of crimes that put, promised a high sentence and as it was the era of the supergrass, Bradshaw was trying to get a reduced sentence by naming others in crimes that he would taken part. The trial began on the 10th of November 1980. Bradshaw had pleaded guilty, so it was Gerard and Ronnie Knight who were contesting the case. Knight's defence in court was that if he wanted rid of Zomparelli, as he'd been telling everybody that he did, he would have used professional hitmen. Knight's defence barrister argued that Bradshaw had nothing to lose by telling untrue stories about others, as he was serving a life sentence for murder and had a hundred other offences that he was guilty of committing. committing. Knight seemed to be saved by an important prosecution witness, 
claiming that he had no dealings with Knight in the past, as he was testifying that Knight was behind the murder. However, a cheque from the witness was given to Knight for thousands of pounds, which had bounced some years previously. This proved that the witness had had dealings with Knight in the past, and that he was a hostile witness, hoping that Knight would be put away and he wouldn't have to pay the money back. Knight was found not guilty in the murder of Zomparelli, although the testimony of Barbara Windsor, beloved of the nation, of the Carry On films, and later an East Ender star, did no harm to Knight's defence. I suppose many people would have thought, well, if Knight is the husband of Barbara Windsor and a friend of the stars, how can he be guilty of a gangland murder? Nicky Gerrard, who had fired the gun that killed Zomparelli, had been Knight's co-defendant, and he was also found not guilty. He was not released from custody as he was serving a sentence of seven years, starting in May 1978 for an attack on the boxer Michael Glukstadt at the Norseman Club in Canning Town. Gerard's reputation increased after he killed Zomparelli and managed to be acquitted. Nicky Gerard was an enforcer and a contract killer, just as his father Alfie Gerard had been. Alfie Gerard had worked closely with Freddie Foreman, being responsible for murders and doing work for the Cray Gang. Apart from the scrap metal business he had in South London, he also ran the Blue Place, a South London fish and chip shop during the 1960s. Alfie Gerard collapsed and died from a blood clot in a hotel lift in Brighton during the 1970s. Nicky Gerard was thought to have a number of enemies and he'd once been called the most feared man in London. Some people thought that Gerard was getting too big for his boots and was trying to muscle in on some criminal business on the turfs of others, one of whom was Tommy Hole. After being released from jail, Nicky Gerrard was murdered while in the car after leaving his house in Peckham, South London, on the 27th of June 1972. It was the 11th birthday of his daughter, Vicky. Gerrard left his house at just gone 9pm. He got into his old mobile's car to drive to the pub. Two men were waiting for him. He was shot with a shotgun and as he crawled from his car he was battered by the stock of the shotgun around the head and then was shot again. The police didn't have much of a clue who was to blame. They even took in his friend Ronnie Knight for questioning, suggesting that he wanted Gerard out of the way so he could never tell the truth about the Alfredo Zomparelli murder, which Knight had already been cleared of in court. It was generally considered that Nicky Gerard had been overstepping the mark for some time, upsetting and bullying people, having affairs, getting involved in business that was not his concern. He had been warned, and a wreath with his name had been delivered to his house. Even his friends, such as Ronnie Knight, thought that Nicky Gerard had been making bad decisions. The police got to hear about the problems between Gerard and Tommy Hole. Tommy Hole was a hard man and a career criminal of the 1960s and 70s. Incidentally, one of the crimes that Hole had probably committed, but, but uh, got away with, saw his co-accused, George Davis, sentenced to 20 years. This led to a famous publicity campaign claiming George Davis is innocent, which included pop songs telling that Davis was innocent, and digging up the Headley cricket pitch between a test match between England and Australia. Just before the last day's play, the match was evenly balanced. This caught the public's imagination and irritation. Tommy Holwood served seven years for attempted murder and a sentence for running a drugs factory, as well as other acquittals for violence and robberies. Tommy was charged with Nicky Gerrard's murder. He was a cousin by marriage to Nicky, 
and was also said to be a friend. It was generally accepted that Tommy was behind Nicky's murder in 1982, but there was not enough evidence for a conviction, and witnesses that said he had been the murderer withdrew their statements. There was one strong rumour that, apart from business squabbles, Gerard, who considered himself a ladies' man, had been having an affair with Kevin Hole's wife, Kevin Hole being Tommy's son, and Tommy had been having an affair with Nicky's wife, Linda. Just to add to the twisted, complicated set of relationships, Nicky's mother said that Tommy Hole was innocent. Linda Gerard moved away from the area soon after Nicky's death. However, there were also other rumours over who had been responsible for Gerard's murder that were never properly investigated, although so many false rumours were spread to cause confusion. Tom and his son Kevin were arrested a few days after Nicky's murder, just as they were planning to leave on a trip to Florida. But some months later, they were told that there would be no charges brought against them. Getting away with a murder always seems to enhance reputations, and Tommy Hole was now considered a major criminal player. Hole had become involved in the production and supply of drugs, speed, and fetamine sulfate was his speciality. He was also involved in a number of other criminal enterprises, including armed robbery, that had made him very wealthy. He even was said to own a hotel in Benidorm. Tommy Hole manufactured speed with his son Kevin. Both were caught and sentenced to eight years in prison. They had cells next to each other. But Kevin took his own life during his sentence, hanging himself in his cell. His conviction later being overturned after his death. It was said that after his son's death, Tommy was a broken man and turned his back on his old life, avoiding the areas that he used to frequent. Once his sentence was over and he was released, Tommy married again in 1995 and attended the East Ham Memorial Psychiatric Hospital for regular checkups. He attended New Newham College of Further Education where he studied motor vehicle diagnosis to MVQ level. The college said he was a model student. On the 5th of December 1999, 57-year-old career criminal Tommy Hole was drinking in the Beckton Arms, Canning Town, with his lifelong friend, 55-year-old Joe the Crow Evans and Jeff Humphreys, Evans' son-in-law. They were watching football. Liverpool were beating Sheffield Wednesday 4-1. It was claimed that somebody had come in the pub just before the match and scouted it before leaving. A quarter of an hour later, two men walked into the public house and shot both Hole and Evans, dead with her handgun, before calmly leaving the pub. It seemed like a professional hit. Humphreys were left standing with a pub full of witnesses as the killers made their good their escape. Of course, nobody said it, uh, saw anything that uh, could prove useful to the police. Tommy's Hole's murder was unsolved. The police saying their inquiries were hampered by the close-knit community unwilling to speak to police and that it was most likely a professional gangland killing. There were rumours in a local Newham newspaper that it was a revenge attack for the murder of Nicky Gerard. The newspaper had said that Hole had only been out a few months from prison and he attended the funeral of Nicky Gerard's uncle, Jimmy, in Plaistow during November 1999. The newspaper quoted, Somebody said, What's he doing here? Because everyone knows he killed Nicky Gerard. And then he turned around and said, well, no one's ever done anything about it, so maybe somebody decided they would do something about it. The local newspaper was forced to publish a correction refuting the story. 
but it does seem unlikely that a revenge for a killing 17 years previously, it seems odd that no matter what was said, that this was going to be a, a cause to kill two people for a personal vendetta. Maybe break a bone or two, but murder just doesn't seem to ring true. Other rumours circulated that Hole was still doing favours for London gangsters, but he wanted to branch out into the big time himself. He was organising a major deal to buy cocaine and stole at gunpoint 80 to £100,000 worth of cocaine. Yet another rumour was Hole was murdered by his former father-in-law after an argument over money. His former father-in-law being Chick Matthews who owned a scrap metal business. Scrap metal business. He was arrested with Kevin for operating a drugs factory in Canning Town. Tommy wanted Kevin's share of the money that had been hidden away. Other theories being that the crow, Joey Evans, was shot first. Maybe he was the target. Although Evans was a nobody tough guy, and been friends with Tommy Hole since they'd been attending the same school in Canning Town. Was he the target? Who can say? Ronnie Knight, who lived in Spain until 1994, running an Indian restaurant and nightclub called RK Nights. But towards the end of his time there, he was in financial difficulties, and he was worried about a new breed of criminals who had moved to the area and caused him problems. There had been violence at his nightclub, and the police were going to close it. Friends of, it had been, friends of his had been murdered. Nevertheless, it was a surprise when Knight left the sanctuary of Spain after being paid money by the Sun newspaper to send a story and return to the UK. Knight was arrested and given a seven-year sentence at the Old Bailey after admitting that he received more than £300,000 from the Security Express robbery. The money was transferred from Knight's UK bank accounts to the Spanish bank accounts and he invested in flats, the restaurant and the nightclub. But Knight lost all of the money on these businesses. They weren't a financial success. By the time he returned to the UK, Knight claimed he was penniless with no assets. After his release from prison, Ronnie Knight was fined for shoplifting. Ronnie Knight, who had seen the highs and lows, but insisted he was never a gangster. A gangster is someone who walks about with a gun and demands money and gets away with it. Ronnie Knight said, I'm a lovable rogue, a rascal, and as for money, I've never hit anyone for money. Well, that was another short episode. I had been working on some la longer, more recent cases, but with the British Library and the National Archives both being closed, I've had to put those on hold for the time being. And although I hear that they are opening again soon, um, it's going to be difficult. They're having slots and restricted times there, so um, I'm not sure when I'll be going back there. Anyhow, my next podcast will probably be a much longer one from 1946, so I'm hoping that you will be uh, listening to that in the future. I'd like to thank Damselfly for the background music, and thank you for listening, and goodbye. <laughs>